It's very lovely to be back here. And it's quite remarkable the circumstances under which I am here. So there's um, a, a, a kind of a lovely way where um, blessings come in very strange packages. As it turned out, I've had quite some uh, health problems, and part of that has been I canceled a lot of plans. I was going to be going up to Canada and uh, spending a number of weeks there and traveling around Seattle and Portland and and uh, it changed quite quickly and then all of a sudden I had almost two months of wide open space and nothing to do and no place to be and so I, I sent an email uh, to Alice how would it be if I came to uh, Santa Barbara a friend had a boat and they thought it would work out for me to stay on the, on the boat but I'm a little bit like the princess and the pea you know that story of the princess and the pea Except I'm the princess in the chemical pea. <laughs> One small little fume and I can find it in a whole huge giant space. So the boat wasn't going to work so well. But Alice, Alice um, picked up on the picture and, and brought me back to her home. So I'm here and just remarkable, remarkable kindness. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting circumstance because, you know, here I am as a, an alms mendicant and... I'm not in a position to um, store food or cook food, and I don't have money on me, and I don't have a credit card. And so, like, the kind of most basic things that everyone needs, like food and shelter and transportation and medicine, I'm at other people's, um, I'm in other people's care to see that those things are, are met. And for most people, that's, like, the worst nightmare. Like, you know, you can't quite imagine something that would be more horrifying than that, not not being able to take care of those basic things. And as, you know, having lived as a nun now for 20 years, I've been a bhikkhuni now for one year, and I can see, you know, this circumstance, it certainly has been an opportunity to be able to reflect on the nature of clinging and grasping, but it also has been a tremendous opportunity to contemplate generosity and gratitude. And because the lifestyle requires a level of vulnerability that most people would run a million miles before they would enter into that, that vulnerability also elicits in people a kind of kind-heartedness that is indescribable. It's actually, it blows me away, and I've been doing this for 20 years. I have never ceased to be amazed by the kindness that I am constantly the recipient of. Now, obviously, I, I, I like to live in a way where I'm not um, kind of like a walking chaos zone, you know, just landing on people's doorsteps with a kind of a large list of needs that need to be taken care of. But it just, um, 
you know, in a, in a society like this that's usually quite pressurized with people who've got plenty more to do than a day can manage and and yet, you know, one person or another person has a room or a place or can manage it or can negotiate it and somebody can take me and somebody can make a phone call and help get some medicine and, you know, it just, it somehow it works. So my life is, um, you know, plenty uh, opportunities for expression of, of, of generosity, of contemplating generosity and contemplating gratitude. My life is living in a field of generosity and a field of gratitude. And it has a um, exquisite effect of, you know, learning how not to take anything for granted, not to make assumptions. You know, and even though the next day can be very different, completely different, um, you know, what it's like to live where what I receive is the gift of other people's kindness. You know. Now, we are all like that. It's just that because people earn a living or have money or a paycheck or a pension or whatever, we don't think it's like that, you know. And because of that, we lose contact with the kind of connection that we have with the earth and the connection that we have with each other and the way in which a, a kindness, a smile, and a telephone call, and a, 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 some little gesture is, is, is constantly coming our way, you know. But when we look back and from another perspective, you know, I think probably every single person here walked into this room tonight. And how many people actually took note of the fact that they were able to walk into this room tonight and how many people are not able to walk into a room you know and I think everybody here can see and how many how many of us actually registered I can see you know I actually have the ability to see and it's not easy for me to tell, but it's not apparent that there isn't anybody here who cannot hear. I have a very dear friend who's a Dhamma teacher, and when her first son was born, for some reason that the doctors never were able to tell, she became suddenly deaf. I think you've met her, Barbara, Barbara Brodsky. Mm -hmm. You know, so in an instant, she went from being an incredibly articulate, engaged person in her community to being completely isolated and not being able to communicate with anybody and having lost her balance and having to crawl to look over her brand new infant son, you know? And it's like, you know, we can hear. Did anyone take note of the fact that we can hear? And did you have food today? And was it enough? And when you ate the food, did your stomach go into twists? Or did it actually digest? You know, I know people who spent decades with their stomachs absolutely in complete tangles every single time they ate anything. They couldn't digest any food. You know, but we don't, we don't think about that. That just comes by as, well, that's normal. You know, it's normal to eat food and not have a problem. But it actually isn't normal. You know, it's what we take to be normal. Yeah. 
And I don't see anybody here who's naked. Everybody here has got socks on. You know, if you walk in India, that's not the case. People don't have socks and lots of people are naked because they don't have enough clothes. And in Santa Barbara, there's no open septic systems and sewers. And in other parts of the world, there are. And you can drink the water out of the tap and you don't need to worry. Maybe a little bit. (laughs) But there's huge parts of our life that we don't reflect on. And yet, there's so many people in this world that don't have these kind of things. So I've been feeling a little bit like the princess and the pea because, you know, I've got chemical sensitivities as a result of having some exposure to mold. And yet, you know, one of my friends, she couldn't leave her house for the better part of five years because she was so chemically sensitive that every single thing totally blew her away. Five years she couldn't leave her house. She was a Dhamma teacher, and she couldn't go to the center because the chemical toxicity in the center she couldn't handle. So she was in her house, you know. And, you know, so we have stuff that we have to deal with, but there's always people who've got it a lot, a lot, a lot worse. You know. And it's difficult for us to remember how to keep it into perspective that way. You know. I want to tell two stories. But I met a man, his name was Max. I met him in Australia. And he's a genius. I mean, like, absolute genius. He's a computer wizard. And he had designed a um, computer programming system that would track... He He made a solar powered motorboat that the the computer would track the movement of the boat so that the solar panels would move in accordance with the movement of the boat and he had this whole thing rigged up anyway he designed the computer system and then he built the boat and they did it all under tremendous pressure because they wanted to build this boat as a part of the um, diplomatic uh, welcoming committee as part of the Sydney Olympics So the Sydney Olympics were happening. They had a deadline. It had to happen. So he was working crazy, 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 crazy hours to get this all together. And they got it finished and in time. And he was a very, very devout um, practitioner. And he went to this place in... um, It's too many years now. I forget the name. There was a particular temple that was a Mahayana temple south of Sydney. And... Like we do 10-day retreats, you know, you go sit with Jack Cornfield for 10 days. Well, they go to the monastery for 10 days and take ordination. So they shave their head and they take robes and they take precepts. And for 10 days, they live as a monastic. And as it is a Mahayana temple, they had a very strong hmm, clarity that the Bodhisattva vows was a really important part of their practice. And my friend Max was absolutely ecstatic to be taking these bodhisattva vows because he had a sense that, you know, this is going to last 
past the precepts, past even this lifetime. This is like, you know, something you set in motion and does not end. So he was really rejoicing that after such an incredibly arduous year, he was finally able to go on this retreat. You know, tremendous joy. So he went on the retreat, had a great time, and at the end of the retreat, his wife Daphne came and picked him up, and, you know, he handed back his robes and some of his precepts. He couldn't collect back his hair. But, you know, and so on the way out, you know, he they had to make a trip to the toilet, went to the toilet. Blood. Everywhere. So they went to the hospital and did extensive tests and they found out he had an extremely advanced case of renal cancer. And the doctors gave him three weeks to live. So he was sitting there with like the shock of this kind of news and trying to figure out, I've got three weeks, what's important? What do I want to do? You know, what matters? And Max is quite an exceptional person because I don't know too many people who would come up with this. He thought, well, really the only important thing that I really need to do is to somehow convey to my family and my friends how much I love them. That was it. That was the only thing that he needed to do. And the single thing that was going to help him to be able to do that is if somehow he could find in himself love for himself. And something happened in the combination of the pressure, the time, the imminence of his death, the circumstance, where it was like the ground cleared and everything that was holding him back from loving fell away. And he was absolutely luminous. And when I met him, this cancer had spread and it was in his spine and it was in his heart and it was in his brain and it was in his everywhere. And he'd go into the doctors and the doctors would take a look at the scan and they'd say, listen, you know, if any other person came in with a scan like this, we'd say you'd have three days. But go away and come back in a couple of months. You know, you're operating on some kind of other systems here. We don't know what's going on. But, you know, and so he lived like this for two years. You know, and he said it was by far, without a doubt, without a question, the best time of his life because he knew what love was. He wasn't confused. He knew it was happening, his body was dying, but he was absolutely not confused. And everybody loved to hang out with Max. You know? So what does it take, you know? What does it take to remember? What does it take to be thankful? What does it take to be grateful? What does it take? What does it take for us to love ourselves? Just as we are. So a couple of weeks ago, I was teaching at Urban Doma which is a, a group in San Francisco, Vinnie Ferraro's group. And Jean was 
going to be the one who was going to welcome me because Vinny was away teaching with Noah Levine up in Esalen. So I didn't get to sing Vinny. And usually when somebody is welcoming you to a group, they come 15 minutes early or 20 minutes early, you know, say hello. And he wasn't there, he wasn't there, he wasn't there, he wasn't there, he wasn't there. Two minutes before the time begins, he comes in and he's helping this young woman with an oxygen tank up the stairs to get her seated. And every single breath was like a labor. Every single one. You could hear it because the oxygen tank would, you know, it's like a scuba tank. It would go off and on. She's young. She's like 20 years old. So I'm listening to her labored breathing during the whole evening and during the talk. And at the end, she says, you know, is anybody going back to the East Bay? Because she needed a ride. So it happened that where I was staying was going to be in East Bay. We were going back. We gave her a ride. Remarkable human being in her early 20s. She had been born with cystic fibrosis. And she knew from the time she was old enough to know that there was going to be a time when her lungs were going to fail. And she was going to be at a threshold. And either she would die or she would get lungs and get a lung transplant and the lungs might work or they might not work. And here she was, 20-something years old, knowing this was happening to her, that her body was failing. And she kept on saying, I feel so grateful. I feel so incredibly grateful. It's really weird, but I feel so lucky that I am alive. How many of us would be able to manage that without any trace of poor, pitiful me of the terrible situation that I'm in? Now, I don't know her journey of how she got there, and I don't know her grief, and I don't know how much of a journey it will be now on for her. But the clarity, the confidence, the unmistakability was apparent. She was grateful to be alive and absolutely clear it was totally uncertain what was on the cards from here, from here on out. So here we are. It's two days away from Thanksgiving, you know. It's a big time in this country for families to gather. Sometimes it's torturous because family dynamics can be really challenging. Sometimes it's wonderful because family dynamics can be really wonderful. But is there a time to contemplate what we have in our lives? The abundance, the gifts, the sight, the health, the intelligence, the capacity, the friends, the network, the safety, the warmth, our capacity to practice, to reflect, to love. What happens when we feel grateful? We take a moment. What happens when we don't? We don't need to make any kind of a 
marshmallow smear over life, you know, and take things which are genuinely difficult and wave some kind of a of a affirmation over it and transform it into something which is positive. That's not what I'm suggesting. But genuinely touching into what is present and for how many millions and billions of people they have things quite different. So enough as a contemplation. Take what's useful, leave what isn't. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.